Hello and welcome to this 14th episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. And of course, for those of you joining this podcast, we're trying to do that breaching of the church by, in the last few weeks, starting deliberately to prioritise a new teaching series. We're currently now in the book of 1 Corinthians and we'll be in 1 Corinthians for the rest of this year at least, into the early parts of 2020 I imagine. But regardless, we are going to continue to have teaching as a priority on this podcast but that's in addition to our guests and interviews and a more chit-chat based. Chit-chat is not the right way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Um, in other words, teaching is going to be a priority moving forward. So here we are. This is uh, episode 14 of season two of Into the Prey. Um, for those of you who've got a keen ear, you'll have noticed I made a mistake in the last episode with Paul Thompson. That was actually episode 13. This is 14. And... For those of you who don't give a rip about episodes and season numbers and so on, I've already probably bored you and irritated you, but but praise God for those of us who do care about such things. Anyway, this week uh, we are going to be focusing on the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2. If you've not had the time or for whatever reason didn't know about the previous three episodes in this teaching series, I'd encourage you to go back and do that. That might be a real encouragement for you just to have that sense of continuity and momentum just as we go through. So um, go ahead and do that. Maybe pause this and go and listen, catch up. And I'm not going to spend time recapping or summarizing those previous sessions just to keep these sessions as succinct and short as possible. So last time we came to the end of the book, first chapter, and today we are now broaching, breaching and broaching the second chapter. So I'm just going to read the first five verses. And as usual, I'll be reading from the ESV. I've got the NIV here for reference. And we'll see where we go. Father, I just pray, even as I read this in a live moment and for people listening afterwards, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see wonderful things in your law. Spirit, I ask you just to enable me now, and I pray for people listening as we approach your living, eternal word, that you would allow us to hear your still small voice in the midst. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So this is 1 Corinthians 2, the first five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So as usual, I've got, uh, I'm going to go through this verse by verse, and it's important to do that. Um, So often it doesn't happen, and as I've said a number of times, and will continue to say, we are all the worse off for not studying the Bible properly and thoroughly as we should. I've entitled this um This week, just make no bones, and that will make more sense at the very end of what I want to say today, but make no bones. Um, First one, and I, this is Paul, obviously, Paul and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's teaching on weakness and power. So this is him fleshing out his teaching in the previous chapter, really, In in the end section, the second session. I've lost touch with a number of sessions here, but anyway, in the previous, the immediately previous section when Paul was teaching on foolishness and wisdom, strength and power, sorry, strength and weakness, um, he's now saying to the Corinthians, and I, and he starts in the ESV, it's, it's, not, it's not like this in the NIV, but in the ESV, he starts these sentences a number of times here, and I, when I came to you brothers, and this is, so this is Paul giving his his kind of personal application uh, to his previous section. 
Which is important, isn't it? It's important in any communication biblically that there's a personal application. And I'll try and do that a little bit today as well for all of us listening. But it, Paul wanted to make the point in a sense that this this previous theory or this previous theology, this previous teaching was being outworked in his life personally as he traveled and visited different countries and regions. Here he was in in Corinth. Um, And so even in the beginning section of this today, I want to just ask us all, like Paul, in terms of the rubber hitting the road, I think that's really what Paul was saying is that this is this is how it hits the road for him. This is how the rubber hits the road for Paul in that he comes to Corinth in the same way that he's just explained we should all be living and thinking. So if that's true of Paul, how much more should that be true of us equally that we come in the same mentality, we come in the same um way of thinking as Paul, that he didn't come with the lofty speech that the Corinthians would have loved him to have come in. He didn't come with the superior wisdom that was the kind of native language of Corinth and that part of the world at that time in history. But he came with the counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, topsy-turvy, inverted reality of the kingdom, which was, as he says uh, in his... In not in lofty speech and wisdom, but with much fear and trembling and in weakness. So he came to the city and to the church. And the church in the city, that's verse 1, verse 2, where, again, just keep in mind, every time we, we read this, we should be thinking, this is Paul writing to the church who are in Corinth, not not how it should be Corinth in the church. So he came to the, he came to the city and the church in the city, in the spirit and the state of mind, it was a polar opposite to the prevailing culture. Just think of him speaking. It would be like speaking a different language, an entirely different way of thinking. Think about going to a different country and just speaking your own language or the, or the language of your kingdom. And you would have very little hope of being understood, wouldn't you? In, in the natural, at least. So that's what Paul's saying. And again, remember, I want us just to keep on thinking about this, trying to imagine in as much detail as we're able to about what Corinth was like. This cesspool of immorality and depravity that I've mentioned a number of times, but again, just in terms of trying to imagine in your head, an important part that imagination plays in faith um, and learning just, just about how Corinth was, what it looked like and sounded like, what the priorities were, what the landscape may have looked like. Uh, and you can get a feel for that. Go ahead, just Google ancient Corinth and uh, you'll begin to get a feeling a bit more of a a specific idea and sense of what it was like for Paul in this particularly pungent powerful uh, city and culture for example think about all the temples you know Corinth was a city of temples and if you'd seen a say a drone type aerial shot of the city you'd have just seen temple after temple after temple and it could have been the temple of Apollo it could have been the temple of Aphrodite Whatever, you know, and you can still see actually today seven pillars still remaining of the, the Temple of Apollo. Um, just just immensely um, demonic, spiritually charged uh, environment. And then you've got the marketplaces and the types of the hustle and bustle of where the Corinthians would have sold meat and fish and, you know, then the, then you've got the, the um, Acro-Corinth, you know, the hill in Corinth, on which Aphrodite's temple was actually based. If you, I've got a feeling I've seen that in one of the Narnia films when the children pull up on shore. I think they've used that part in in that uh, Acro Corinth. But anyway, trying to get a feeling for all of this is so important in terms of as we read and think about the the nuance and the, the more granular nature of the text as Paul is writing and as we're supposed to read and learn. Um, just just try. What I'm trying to say is. Spending time studying the place that Paul actually was will help our reading. So in Corinth, the lofty speech and the eloquence and the superior wisdom, that's what everything was about for the Corinthians and shamefully for some parts of the church still. And that's why Paul was writing for the maturity of the church. And then two, Paul, the foolish message of the cross. 
the message that we heard about in the last time in the last session the message of the of the cross the message of Christ crucified and the folly that is to those who are perishing uh, but the hope and the blessing that it is to those who are being saved so you think about it like this if the expect expectation for Paul really perhaps maybe an unstated expectation is that he would come in that same value system as the Corinthians of lofty speech and eloquence and superior wisdom and so on. What would be the equivalent of that today? Well, think about the emphasis in the church of entertainment. For example, is our speech, is the speech that we are prepared to give as those who are speaking and leading and so on, all the speech that we're prepared to sit and listen to, how much how much of an emphasis is on entertainment or seeker sensitivity or uh, the speech being cool and slick and, and humorous? You know, humor has a big part, doesn't it, in, in some circles? Um, but Paul, it's important for us just, 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 just to really think about this, that Paul wasn't thinking on those terms. He wasn't thinking about how to, even as I'm speaking now and doing this podcast, there are practical things that help me to communicate and keep my mind on track and so on. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But even as I'm preaching now or as I'm speaking about the cross of Christ, we have to believe that there's power in preaching. We have to believe that it is the supernatural, all um, the living word of God is able to cut our hearts and encourage our hearts and provoke our minds, not because of whether I speak too quietly whether i speak far too loudly and i see some some waveforms on my garage band peaking or that i've used the right analogy or that it's the right length all of that is secondary to what paul is saying we have to be so aware of that this isn't just a trap for the corinthians in that they had this cultural obsession with eloquent speech and superior wisdom what is the equivalent for us today and there are equivalents we have to be very aware of that both as speakers and as listeners Let's go to verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing. As, as I read that, I think of Paul. I imagine him making that decision in advance of going to Corinth or going on his first missionary trip. In other words, I imagine Paul making that decision when he was in Arabia. So if you read back through Acts sorry, not Acts, uh, Galatians. And if you go to Galatians 1.17 and you see that Paul talks there in that, the way he describes what he did, what he felt his priority should be after Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Paul took himself off for three years. It's not an insignificant period of time, is it? And uh, our imaginations again have to come into that because you think, well, what was Paul doing in Arabia for three years on his own? Obviously, the priority was that he wanted to hear. I can I can imagine him downloading, having all of that ancestral Pharisaical teaching and brainwashing being undone. Um, but this this emphasis that he obviously had come to, which was that he was he was going to decide to, in a sense, forego any other form of knowledge or wisdom or eloquent speech or approach or style or strategy, and focus purely. On Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to come to that in a bit more detail in a minute. But I want to make the point about this whole thing of decided. You know, I, even now as I'm speaking about it, I think of, I have decided, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I think that's the language in Joshua, if I'm not mistaken. And so, in other words, if you don't plan... Um, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? So if you if you fail to make a plan, the chances are you're going, in a sense, to fail. And so I think there's something of that in this, is that Paul's um, life subsequent to Acts 9 all hinged on this decision. It's very easy to read over that quickly and gloss over it and not kind of feel the significance of it, but that Paul's whole life, really, after Acts 9 was based on the decision that he was going to know nothing, and we'll come to that in in next week's session. It doesn't mean literally nothing. Um, But that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And to, to ask us as well, to what extent, when did we make that decision? I don't mean a, a decision of salvation. You could, you could be a Christian for 60 years and never make a decision to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. So to ask us all to think about the questions today, when did you make that decision, decision to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Or indeed, will you make that decision to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? There are, as again for Paul, there were our temptations for us to feel like we need something more than that. And that's that's not true. That's not the case. I'm not anti-learning. I'm not anti-training. I'm not against anti-academia or whatever. I'm just saying that when the rubber hits the road, we have to have an obsession with the man Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And we're going to come to that in a minute in terms of practically what that might mean and what the result of that is. To say as well, I wanted to make the point that Paul, for example, this is not, Paul came in much physical weakness and there would have been an emotional trembling as well as physical. But in terms of knowledge, Paul was not stupid. You know, if Paul had gone head to head with the Greeks and with the Jews and with, you know, he may well have held his own. He may well have been the best. People may well have got saved if his approach had been to enter into those types of debates lengthy as they would have been and stylistically as they would have been he may have had some and you know so it's important to um keep in mind with that Paul wasn't lurching to that uh, that preference of knowing nothing apart from Jesus Christ and crucified because he didn't have anything else up his sleeves or because or because he wasn't capable of uh engaging and and kind of sparring with with the with those in in Corinth, it was because he recognised the truth that we're going to come to in verse five in a minute. That God's wisdom, again, as we've seen of the inverted topsy turvy kingdom, was not to prefer that. And so, for Paul, there would have been elements for sure of self control, of being very intentional about this. It might have been quite unnatural for him, given his pre conversion life. So so, Paul was no idiot put it that way he was no he was no slouch um so this thing about making no bones okay that's really where the title for this comes from is that paul made that decision he made no no bones to be very sure and definite about something that's what paul's saying is that he was making this very sure and definite decision to be singularly focused on jesus christ and his death on the cruce on the cross um think about a Paul like this for example like if he was on the mastermind show today right and he sat down in that famous black chair spotlight came down the, the audience fell silent and then he was asked Paul what's your what's, what's your uh, specialist subject Paul's specialist subject was Jesus Christ and him crucified that's it and he would have had however many minutes to answer as many questions as he could about that about that subject about that focus that was it and uh, we should be like that today. I really want to encourage us all to think about the possibility that we can be a Christian, a follower, a believer, and yet not with that same singularity of focus. By the way, that's not just his his um, his life and his death. Paul, within that, it's important to think about the phrase, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not all and one the same thing. So Jesus' life... And then his death, a very specific death on a Roman cross. Again, we'll come to that in a moment. But it's everything to do with Jesus. You know, it says at the end of the, of the Gospel of John, you know, if everything was to be written about Jesus and all the other things he did, there wouldn't be enough room in all the world to hold all the books that could be written. So Paul's Paul is saying that it's not... I, what I want us to get understand today is this is not just Jesus in Gethsemane and then or the Last Supper and then Gethsemane and then on the cross and then that... Paul is saying everything about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for sure, but then his soon return. And that's that's Paul's specialist subject, if you like, and forsaking all else for that to be possible and fruitful. So let's read verse three and four. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's really important, again, this is where imagination comes in to think about what Paul would have looked like. We know that Paul wasn't a, a large man. We know that he was quite small. We know that he... We know some of the physical um, characteristics of Paul, but one of them would have been, for example, his disabled gait, his disabled walking. You know, that Paul had, Paul received, we know from scripture that he received the 40 lashes minus one three times. You know, where he would have been brutally whipped by the Jewish rulers and authorities and the, and the extent of that, it's almost something that you're just thinking, oh, it's a biblical turn of phrase or whatever, but it's again, it's again, ugh, I don't want to encourage you too much about to do this, but if you were to Google, for example, what a bow-legged disability looks like, and we know that Paul would have most likely been bow-legged in that sense, where if you imagine st- standing up and your knees um, go out to the side, go outwards, so go out laterally, um in a kind of like concave, I'm trying to remember my concave and convex. So basically like the shape of a C on either side of you and your ankles touch at the at the ankle bones. And you're walking like, imagine Paul, imagine Paul's gait, imagine Paul's physical walk that, you know, people can recognise other people by their style of walking, can't you? In fact, um, John was it that says, you know, that if if you to love Jesus or to follow him, you need to walk as he walked. Well, walking as Paul walked, if that meant physically, which of course it didn't, but if it did, it would have meant walking with a bizarre kind of shuffle, a bit like a penguin, more than a normal walking gait. Such would have his disability been because of the extent carrying the scars on his body um, that he considered to be uh, an immense joy and privilege. So, when Paul comes in, in weakness, fear, and trembling, these aren't poetic devices. And Paul approached his mission. He approached his mission in Corinth with, with, as I say, with these scars and the bow-legged physique of a man who was suffering. And we know that that was going to be part of his his journey. And Jesus, what did Jesus say to Ananias in Acts nine, nine Acts nine sixteen? Um, Jesus, Jesus had said that he was going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's what Jesus said. And so Paul was coming to the Corinthians in this kind of weakness, fear and trembling. That in a sense was the same weakness, fear and trembling that Jesus would have experienced. Imagine Jesus in Gethsemane. Imagine here his fear or weakness and trembling. Imagine the... Um, imagine that the the sweating of blood we know physiologically is a is a possible response to intense stress and pressure imagine the pressure you know that's that pressing like olives being pressed in a to make oil that's what was happening in the life of jesus and jesus had said to paul hey you're going to share in these sufferings uh, philippians three ten. are we open to the place of suffering as we proclaim the word of the cross what does it say in what does it let's just go to there what what does it say in Philippians 3:10 let's do verse 9 and 10 and be this is Paul and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Are we open, guys, are we open to the place of suffering as we proclaim the word of Christ, as we in the word of cross, as we proclaim that word, if you remember from the last session? um, What might that look like for us today? Again, thinking of Paul's disability and what that would have looked like and how that would have felt for Paul, his inability of walking, let alone running away from people that wanted to stone him or flog him or or just kill him you know it's this this was a guy who would have been struggling to walk it, uh, let alone 
run. And the fragility of this is so important to remember in that the boldness that we see and the ability that we see that comes from the spirit is the whole point of these five verses, uh, as we'll come to in, in verse five in just a moment. So um, it says in verse four here, this whole thing of plausibility and um, plausibility and the power of God. So plausibility versus power, not wanting the results of his speech to be a plausible, natural outcome, but rather a powerful outcome, a supernatural outcome. What does it say in verse four? And specifically now, remember, he's emphasizing again his speech and my speech and my message, that message of the cross that we saw in the last session, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power or in a more well-known verse version in NIV, but in a demonstration of the spirit's power. This issue of power is so, isn't it, isn't it? It's so important for all of us thinking about often the powerlessness that we feel, not just in and of ourselves, but in the church corporately. How powerless does the church seem to be in the face of secularism or humanism or or um, any form of ism that isn't rooted in faith in Jesus Christ? Just the, just the kind of like, oh, why aren't we seeing more people saved? Why aren't we seeing people healed? And so Paul is raising this point here and he's and he's talking about power in the context of what is it that people's faith what is it that the corinthians faith the corinthian church's faith is resting in is it in the wisdom of god the power of god or is it in the wisdom of men and again the 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 futility of thinking of faith resting in the wisdom of men what a nonsense and how often is that the case? How often do we want that to be the case? Do we try for that to be the case? Paul didn't want his speech. He knew that this message of the cross was not plausible. Paul knew that there was this pressure for things to potentially be plausible. How often is that again, the, the pressure on people today speaking or people listening? You know, we want things to be plausible. But you think about the cross and you think about Jesus hanging on the cross in the in the apparent failure and apparent cursedness the apparent um you know that's not plausible for people who don't have eyes of faith who people like it says in another part of this chapter that we'll come to next week where it says that if the the rulers and the the rulers and the leaders and the powers of the air had known had seen this they would have never crucified the lord of glory they they don't see it. They they have no. They they. This is just not plausible. And it and it was because it wasn't plausible that these guys hadn't seen the glory that had been locked up for ages, hidden in years, you know, centuries, gone past. But now it's been revealed to us. People of of ages past have longed to look into such things, even angels. And yet we have been given the spiritual sight to see such things. So. Paul was not interested in plausibility any more than he was interested in power and strength. He was looking for what? He was looking for the supernatural power of the spirit of God. He wasn't interested in natural outcomes, rationale, you know, rationally thought through rhetoric that, oh, that makes sense. He was looking for the supernatural power, the supernatural demonstration of the spirit's power. And finally, verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, let's think about that. Again, we've said that that's Paul's mission. He wants people who are who are hearing him, new converts, converts already, but who are immature and who are growing into maturity. That's Paul's overriding mission of the whole of his life to see the church built up in love. Um, is he didn't want this, their faith to rest in anything in one sense that he said, but in the power of the Spirit of God. So let's ask ourselves some questions. If our faith is supposed to be resting in the power of God, not the wisdom of men, when was the last time that you would say that you saw the power of God? When was the last time? When was the last time that you would say that your faith rested in the power of God? Have you ever been aware of your faith resting or failing to rest in the wisdom 
of man. Yeah, I think it's worth... I actually did that, and I'll come to a little story in a minute, when I have a very vivid memory of the power of God. When I asked that question, it'd be good just to maybe pause the podcast for a moment and just just think of that question. When was the last time that I can say with absolute certainty, whether in church or outside of a church meeting, whatever, that I saw the power of God? And I think what we might start to grope for is some kind of moment where we saw someone get healed. Maybe a moment in a meeting time of worship. I don't want to put too many things in your head, but just think about it from your from your life. And as I thought about that, let me tell you what came to my mind. The first thing that came to my mind was that I really had to think. <laughs> it's not like I could just quickly refer to last week. Or even last year. Or even last... The point being... Seeing the power of God in this way that Paul is prioritizing for people's faith to rest in is not a common occurrence, it would seem. The thing that I remember, um, Mary and I were talking about this and Mary had something that she'll maybe share another time. Um, what The thing that came to my mind was of an incident, uh, again, years and years ago, I was probably, I don't know, at least... 10 years ago, maybe 15. And I was working at a language school, um, just helping foreign students who had come across to the UK to learn English. And I remember meeting this Chinese girl, this Chinese um, lady, and she'd come, she was actually living with her family in Switzerland. And she'd come across from Switzerland to... Uh, Devon, which is where I lived at the time, and I, I remember meeting her in the student room, bumping into her over lunch or something, and just noticing that she was wearing a cross. And a conversation came from that, interestingly. But the longer story short is that this girl called Nana, um, she wasn't a Christian, she wasn't a believer, and that became obvious quite quickly. But because of the connection with her, um being a Chinese lady living in now in Europe, I had relatively recently to that read Brother Yun's book, The Heavenly Man, that if you've not read, I'd encourage you to. It's a it's a very it's astounding book. And so the conversation started going on to that and the connection with his suffering and his experiences. Um, and again, long story short, I I lent the book to this to this girl and she'd gone away with the book and she devoured it and she read it within within a few days literally within a few days and shortly after that um she became a christian the long story short is that she became a christian and in her excitement and sense of being shocked and overwhelmed by what she'd read by way of testimony in brother yun's book and the way that she was able to relate to that as a Chinese lady. Um, she described to me the the moment when she'd been looking out of her window and with the pennies dropping and the realisation dawning that she didn't know Jesus. She didn't know the risen, resurrected Jesus and she didn't know the word of the cross despite the fact that she was wearing a crucifix, that she didn't have this that this was not a reality for her. And as she was describing the moment where she'd been looking out of a window and had started in effect to pray for the very first time and had been aware of something happening. I can't remember what she said exactly, but you know, when someone's trying to reach for language to describe an inner reality that they're struggling to communicate. And that was what had happened. She'd become, a, she'd met Jesus. She'd met the resurrected Lord of glory. And... What followed from there were two amazing things. I was in, I was invited to go and baptise Nana in a swollen... <laughs> it had been the store... If you remember back in 2005-ish, I think it was, when all the railway tracks in Switzerland were washed away through this flooding. and stuff. That was the year. And so I'd been invited over to go and uh, baptise Nana in her church, with her church family in this um, pretty full-on Swiss, Swiss river. Um... The power of God, the power of God. And 
the story let me just quickly finish the story because it doesn't stop there she became she got plugged into this church and i as i say i went over and met them and what have you um for those of you who don't know brother yun actually i think he still lives in germany he was uh, he's not allowed because of the persecution he's he's a wanted criminal in in a sense enemy of the state type thing he's not allowed to give a shine so he he's lived in germany for quite a long time i think that's where he still lives to the best of my knowledge but as I was mentioned earlier, because Nana, this girl who just seeing the power of God, she just become a Christian. It, she got her, she got wind of the fact that Brother Yun was speaking in a church near to where she was, and so she made the trip and made the effort to go and listen to him, having read this book, having read his book that had been so pivotal in her becoming a true lover and follower of Jesus and ended up meeting Brother Yun. How cool is that? Talking to him, able to share her story with him. So all of that to say that that was a, an enduring memory that I have of the power of God. Um, and I want to just say this in closing, that the, the, the power of God, when we think about the demonstration of the Spirit's power, I think it's understandable that we think more to things like, well, when was the last time you saw somebody healed or something, you know? When something like I've just described with Nana happens, that is the power of God. Is there anything more miraculous than a human being wearing a crucifix and it having no meaning to then having their eyes of the heart open to understanding that Jesus is everything? To like in the mentality, in the words of Paul, to resolve, I've decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is there anything more miraculous? Is there anything more powerful than that? So let's not think of leg length differences being miraculously corrected. In one sense, who gives a rip? Does Jesus really care, relatively speaking? Does really Jesus really care if your left leg is longer or shorter than the other? No, he doesn't. What he cares about is whether he knows you, whether you know him personally, and whether you're going to be saved from the misery and agony an unimaginable torment of hell. That's the power of God. And so um, that word dunamis, which is the word that uses Paul uses there in that verse five, the Greek word dunamis, dunamis, that's how you'd pronounce it. Power, strength, violence, mighty miracles, force. That's what I think of when I remember that incident with Nana. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you'll have memories. Maybe write in, let us know, share the story. If you use the Jesus Come app, share it on there. Um, Our faith will rest in the power of God accumulatively, increasingly, as we decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to say that again. Our faith, your faith, my faith, will rest in the power of God, not the wisdom of man, the power of God accumulatively, increasingly, as we decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to explain that just now in closing. But quickly to mention, if you look at that word dunamis, what, what interested me and I was, as I was looking and preparing for this, uh, if you use a concordance, okay, concordance um, where, where you can find cross-references and, um, and so on for the original Greek words that we often just don't understand in our English translations, the most common occurrence of the word power, that word dunamis, you might think which book of the Bible that might be. Well, you might think you might be forgiven for thinking it's in the book of Acts. Acts is quite popular. Um, it pops up there quite a lot or in the Gospels. But actually, the most common use of that word is in the book of Revelation. Making the point that there is currently a disconnect, I think, in the church and in our personal lives between what we know and understand to be true about the power of God and what our experience is. And I think I think God is, before he before Jesus comes, there is going to be a sense, a redemption or a healing or um yeah, a redemption of the current impotence that the church is limping through and that we often feel personally because we don't see people saved. We don't see, I think as the church is reforming. I think as the church begins to face the inevitable questions, if you didn't listen to Paul Thompson's testimony, the church leader that I spoke to in Friday's episode this week of Into the Prayer, listen to that. 
church lead, you know, this process where we begin to face the realities of something not being right, as Shakespeare said, that something's rotten in the state of Denmark, and you just feel it, you instinctively know, as that becomes more widely recognised, accepted, and in faith and obedience responded to, I think there's going to be a corresponding, in a sense, discovery of the power of God in these ways. In the book of Revelation, it's no no coincidence to me that the, the word power is in that book. The book about the end of the age, the book about Jesus' return, more than any other book of the Bible. What I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is that the future is powerful. The future is powerful. The, the church before Jesus comes will be powerful. Not, again, not in the human strength. It's not by might nor by power, said um, Zechariah. But by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. And that's what I mean by power. That's what the future looks like. And just want to leave this now with you. This is... Um, this is this has just been my meditation as I've thought about Paul's singularity of focus on the cross and the and the amazing reality that as we give ourselves to this knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified and again I want to just say that Paul didn't mean that literally it, it didn't mean to say that he literally we'll come to the other kind of wisdom that Paul um just literally next week we'll come to that but the reality of knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and what that really means um, has got nothing to do with time. It's got nothing to do with what period of history you're in. Why? Because King David himself had the same heart as Paul. It would, in as much as it's true to say that Paul knew nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified, that could also be said of David, which is an amazing, miraculous thing in that he lived centuries before Jesus was even born. But it's also true that the Bible reveals that, for example, Moses saw Christ. He saw the Saviour and understood the Saviour, albeit in a limited way. Also for David. And I'm just going to read this to close to make the point that David didn't just have a general awareness of the principle of, for example, living for God rather than his self. Or what did, what did it really mean for David to... Be a man after God's own heart. Well, let me tell you that it, for David to be a man after God's own heart meant that he saw the cross of Christ. It meant that he saw the suffering servant. It meant that he had an understanding of a Jewish saviour to come on whose throne he was able to um, sit and the lineage of which he was a part, if that makes sense. So I'm just going to read you Psalm 22. If you've never come across this, I don't want to assume that everybody has come across this all that has understood the significance of Psalm 22. But this is one of the reasons, again, that I entitled this uh, Make No Bones, because there is a stunning verse in here, in this psalm, amongst many stunning verses, that I think um, very graphically makes the point to which we are all invited to allow the focus of the cross, the, the message of the cross, that we are invited to this way of thinking that effectively says, in relative terms, that we know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a verse in here that I think particularly makes this point for me, that what a miracle it was that David was able to write these words. So I'm not going to apologise for reading all of this because it's it's one of the most beautiful things I could read. And Psalm 22. Again, this is David. And this is a messianic psalm, and you'll see why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me 
from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many balls encompass me, strong balls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The thought there of Jesus on the cross being able to count his bones probably wouldn't have had much mobility in his neck. So I'm imagining he would have maybe been able to see his ribs. It might have been a help to him to have something to focus on visibly, I don't know. But you can see, can't you, that there is a token gesture possible to the cross. And then there is the type of singularity of focus on the message of the cross, the foolish, supernatural, powerful message of the cross that becomes, in a word, obsessive, that results in the likes of King David being able to be described as an incomparable figure in biblical history or in world history, a man after his own heart, that enables you and I to see the power of God as we proclaim the foolish message of the cross, the offensive foolish message of the cross, and in nothing of ourselves expect to see the power of God made manifest most ultimately in a heart, like a Chinese girl's heart, transformed from a crucifix-wearing, token-gesture-giving religious person into someone who would weep the tears of Mary of Bethany. That is why we need to have the same testimony as Paul. As the church is reforming, as the bride is being made ready for the return of Christ, that for I, I have decided to know nothing bar Jesus Christ and him crucified, and in such a way, and in such a way for our lives to start taking on a new weight and sobriety that would allow us to meditate on the cross, the crucifixion. I remember once being recommended to stop thinking about the cross. I remember a pastor of a mega church that I used to go to encouraging everybody to, to not to not think too much about the cross. We can't think, guys, we cannot think about the cross enough. 
Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful man, that we might become sons of God, that we might become adopted. And as we think about these words this week from Paul's writing, from Paul's testimony of being transformed, from the one who would give his consent to the stoning of Stephen, to the one who would then say that I've decided, I've resolved, that I know nothing except Jesus Christ and increase. I pray for the power, Spirit, we ask you for your power to rest on us individually and in whatever corporate contexts we may or may not find ourselves. We don't want our faith to rest in anything, in tradition, in constitution, in denomination, in institution. We want it to rest in your power. And we confess before you today that we know very little of your power. We confess to you today, Father, that we have to think long and hard about the last time we saw your power. And we pray that you would enable us to make decisions in whatever time we have left on this planet to be more faithful, to become faithful as those who are watching for your return and that we would, as a direct consequence, see your power in new, in new ways, in ways that we've never seen your power before. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to this, that their faith would truly rest in the power of God. And we ask you, Father, we ask you, Spirit of God, that we would see the demonstration of your power as we proclaim the word of the cross wherever we are. We pray for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Into the Pray all the way through to the end. I hope it's been a blessing and encouragement, provocation as always. Please take a couple of minutes this week just to maybe share the podcast with somebody. If you've not reviewed it for us, that would be a massive help as well. It helps just to bring the podcast into more visibility if people rate it and comment on it, that kind of thing. Maybe you could think of a friend or two who would benefit from some teaching or from some of the other interviews and that kind of thing. Maybe chuck it their way as well. Until next week, have a great week. God bless.